This episode is made possible by Biobin. This is the organic stream on compostory.org, the bite-sized podcast series interviewing experts and key figures in the environmental sphere on all things organic and recycling. Get your lunchtime organic fix here. Welcome everyone to the organic stream. This week we're talking to master composter Peter Ash. Peter has over 40 years of experience in permaculture design and has worked on projects around the world. This week he'll be telling us how he tackled deforestation and soil erosion in a small village in Madagascar with hardly any funds or manpower. He gives us lots of information on how to understand the natural environment and how to use nature to your advantage when dealing with these issues, so stay tuned to learn more. So Peter, you just came back from a two-month trip to Madagascar. Um, How did that come about? I was hired uh, a year ago when I was in France and I was teaching some gardening and composting classes. And so anyway, I was approached by this Frenchman and he told me about that he has this uh, not much financial backing, but a small NGO in France and they were doing work in Madagascar in, in kind of the northwest area of Madagascar, the drier side of the island, in a fairly remote area, very poor, no running water, no electricity. And they basically built a a small village where they had a school for little children. And then they also had some high school students that were coming from further away. And they're trying to to gain some food security. And uh, they were just having a lot of difficulty. Right. And they sent you there to help them out. Uh, What were the main troubles they were having? So what I discovered was, first of all, that, that that side of the island had been deforested probably 200 years or more ago. The cattle are a very important part of their diet and, and, part of, and very important to their culture. And so what they were doing was they were burning the range um, right before the rainy season to burn off all the weedy vines and these small weedy palm trees. They're burning it all off to create new grasses for the cattle. But anyway, so I get there and I see this deforestation, I see this slash and burn, and then terrible soil erosion. So I immediately saw, okay, we've got to deal with erosion control, we've got to deal with soil fertility, and we need to capture the water. Right, and regarding food, uh, you told me that they were trying to grow rice, and I imagine that was quite a problem. Yeah, um, the property, there was no really low-level land for rice farming. Rice farming has to be done when you're dry farming. You need to have flat land, and you need to be down in the low valleys, in the natural runoff areas. And we didn't have any terrain like that at this village. We were on um, kind of a sandstone bluff, and then it would drop down to what would turn into a stream bed when it rained. And then we had another hill going up the other side. So in very few trees, a few palm trees here and there, a few mango trees um, here and there. You know, mostly everything had been burned off in the past. Right. And how are they for water generally then? Basically, when I got to the village, um, they had two wells, um, hand-dug wells, and it was they were very shallow. And they had planted some trees maybe a year at the most earlier, and they were having to hand water the trees to keep them alive during the dry season. And in one day of watering, they could take the well all the way down to the bottom. Geez, that's quite a dire situation. Yeah. Can you list then the key things you decided to do to help? Right. Um, 
knew we had to do do some earthworks to capture the water and replanting trees um, to help hold water in the soil, digging berms and swales to help hold the water and recharge the water table, um, and then um, uh, soil fertility. Right, and there were some big challenges when it came to improving soil fertility, wasn't there? Yeah, so I tell you what, here's what happened was um, um, it turned out that um, the students that were there, the high school students that I was supposed to be teaching compost to, were mainly not available. Initially, we did make a couple compost piles, and but it was too labor-intensive. So um, what we found was we had we had about 20 head of cattle and a couple goats. Some were owned by the village itself, but most of them were owned by neighbors, but they were penned on our property. And, um, you know, one taboo I've discovered was that we could do no, like, compost toilets or humanure composting. That was completely taboo. But to work with the cow dung and the, the cattle manure, that was not a problem. And they didn't know anything about using it. And so here was this cattle pen, quite a bit of manure had built up in it. And then I discovered that we had a nearby sawmill that had mountains of wood shavings and sawdust that was a waste, and they didn't know what to do with it. So we could get that for free just by sending some men in an ox cart over. And and then there was another nearby village where they grew a lot of sugar cane. They had some low ground and some flat ground, and so there was all this sugar cane waste. So what we decided was that due to lack of labor and equipment, that we would just spread the wood chips and sawdust and the sugarcane waste in the cattle pen and then allow the cattle to just trot on it for a month or so, three weeks to a month, and then we'd just scrape it all out and use it as mulch and we could turn it into the soil for a kitchen garden and so on. And so we let that kind of be one of the major components of our soil fertility program rather than manually making compost and having to turn it and then add more water and so on. And then on top of using the cattle to make compost for us, um, a lot of people have pigs as well, and most, most of the animals just run free, and the range is open range for everyone to use. But then um, we built what we call a pig tractor, which is like a portable pig pen. Uh, so we had the pig tractor with just three little piglets in it. Of course, the pigs are being fed, um, but then we're, we also just do a lot of organic material inside the same, the wood shavings and the sugarcane mulch and then weeds from the garden. We just throw it in there. If the pigs didn't need it, no problem. Uh, they would just comp- basically compost it for us. And then um, when we first built the pig tractor right next to it, just about the same size, we planted some cover crop. And so as soon as the cover crop began to flower, all these nitrogen-fixing plants had you know, captured atmospheric nitrogen fixed it on their root systems. So as soon as it flowers, that's when the plant basically stops growing and starts fruiting, and that's when it uses that nitrogen. So if you cut it at that point, then all that nitrogen, these little nodules that are fixed in the soil on its root system, remain there in the soil. So then what we did was we just moved the pig tractor over and set it down on top of that cover crop, and the pigs just devoured it in no time. But then they left all that nitrogen in the soil already. Amazing. That's a very uh, effective way of getting around the problem of not being able to compost. Yes, uh, indeed it is. Um, 
And then, you know, as far as the reforestation, we looked around and we, we searched out local trees and seedlings. There's a, like, they have some moringa, um, which you can plant just from a cutting. And then there was a couple other trees, some of the acacia that uh, the leaf can be used as fodder. And, you know, of course, acacia will also provide shade. And, and it's a nitrogen-fixing tree, the same as the, the moringa. So we planted trees on the swales, on the berms. Um, using the swales to uh, capture the water to water them. So a lot of what we did around our tree plantings was some woodier plants and trees that were just more or less weeds to us. They weren't fodder for, for animals. They weren't nitrogen fixers. They weren't food for humans. So those trees, we didn't cut them down completely, but we coppiced them heavily so that we could chop off the branches, lay it out as mulch on the ground, and then allow the tree to grow back out so we could c come back and coppice again. And as the trees that we planted grew up larger, we kept creating a larger mulched area around the tree to hold water, to create soil, to create the environment for the microbiology to, to be active. And, and, and then, then we started our own nursery from seeds. And I brought a bunch of seeds with me various seeds of fruit trees and nitrogen fixing trees that would work in Madagascar. And then um, because we had access to bamboo, um, some big stands, you know, bamboo that was several inches wide at the base. And so we cut tubes that were, you know, just open at both ends. And we used that. We put good soil inside. And then we planted tree seeds in those. So when the seeds sprouted, then um, the root could only drop straight down. It couldn't spread out. And then as soon as the seed was up about four inches or so, then we took the whole bamboo tube and we planted the, the seedling in the tube, in the berms, so that as the swale would soak up water, you know, the root would just drop right on through the bottom of the bamboo and get a really good deep start. And uh, so before I left, we planted probably 60, 60 or 80 trees that we'd started in these bamboo tubes. Basically, we had to use just what nature was offering us. Like we couldn't even buy like plastic pots. We couldn't even buy like a plastic tube, you know, to start a seed in. So the bamboo worked great like that. You know, in a year's time or two years' time, you know, with most of the bamboo in the soil, it's going to rot and just be fungal food for the root system, um, which is great. Right, so it's all about using nature to your advantage then. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and we're really looking at, you know, um, any permaculture design is going to begin with just getting a, a good assessment, you know, and un talking with the people, you know, asking them what do they want, you know, what is it that you want, you know, and they needed more food, they needed more fresh water, and so that's what we concentrated on. And then, you know, anything you plant, if you can get some compost into the soil, if you can get any kind of organic material into the soil, because we know that in natural systems, plants don't need fertilizer. They don't need pesticides if the system is healthy. And with the basic understanding of how plants function and, you know, the relationship of the microbiology in the soil, um, when we have a basic understanding of that, we realize that early successional plants are have a, a very highly bacterial-dominated soil food web because early successional plants are annual plants. They're soft green tissue plants. And what decomposes soft green tissue is bacteria. 
And then when we get to the end of plant succession, when we get to old growth forests and, you know, hundreds of year old trees or thousands of year old trees, we see that we have a very fungal dominated soil food web. And so if you're growing trees and you need more fungi in the soil, and if you're growing perennial plants, you know, shrubs and, and things, then you need that balance of bacteria and fungi. And so that's what that we were trying to, to teach our, our local farmers and the villagers there was that around our trees, we've got to get a lot of woody material and mulch and just keep mulching. Nature mulches herself. You know, she's dropping leaves, she's dropping fruit. Man, you know, when we understand that, um, we can build compost piles and make humus in a very short period of time. But actively composting was something we just didn't have the equipment and the, the manpower for. So just laying on layer upon layer upon layer of mulch. Yeah, and it's absolutely amazing what you got done there in such a short time. Um, I, you know, I, I was actually really amazed by how much we uh, accomplished in a two-month period with myself and a couple volunteers and then on average 10 laborers. You know, we established a tree nursery, we dug some key berms and swales, and then only then when the heavy rains, you know, came consistently and the swales remained full, but then when they reached a high level, then they could run off slowly into the natural drainage system. What we didn't have time for on my first trip was to really work the stream bed itself with constructing gabions to slow water down and, um, and not just run right off to the rivers and then out to the ocean. So we feel that you know we should be able to have that stream running year-round in seven years with proper earthworks. That's incredible. And how did the locals react to all of this? Well, I think they were very excited, especially some of the older men were very excited about what they were learning and what we were doing, because in two months' time, you can start to see the changes. And, you know, that when they saw that, my gosh, you know, we're holding some water here. This water would have just ran away, but now it's still sitting there two days after that last rain, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it must be very exciting to see it all working out. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to going back, um, you know, maybe at the end of the rainy season or, you know, like halfway through into the dry season, see what more, you know, we can do just with mulching. and. Great stuff, Peter. You'll have to keep us informed about how you're getting on. Certainly. That was Peter Ash for the Organic Stream on CompostStory.org. You can learn more about Peter Ash on his website, straightash.com, and as always, you can find us on compostory.org or on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is compostory.org. Hope you tune in again next week for more great stories. You were listening to The Organic Stream on compostory.org. This episode was made possible by Biobin. Biobin is the mobile on-site organic and wet material management solution. Wherever organic and wet materials are generated, Biobin is the solution.